The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, invitation is to settle in, settle into your body, your space, your posture. However, things are. However, things have come to be in this moment. It can be helpful to start out maybe with one or two deep breaths, just releasing, relaxing, letting go of any extra effort it took to get here. And then to invite awareness, mindfulness, to be in the forefront, the forefront of attention and intention in these moments. I find it helpful to begin this more open awareness form of meditation by inviting the body to relax. May this body relax. It can even help to sweep the attention through. Starting at the crown of the head. Softening the forehead, scalp, and temples. Relaxing the eyes in their socket. Maybe allowing them to drift downward. Even slightly back, as if very gently looking back at our own experience. Allowing the jaw to relax. The tongue and lips to soften. Bringing awareness to the neck and shoulders. Upper back and upper chest. Perhaps noticing and acknowledging the felt sense of this body breathing. Noticing the gentle movements of breath throughout the areas of the throat nose, mouth, chest. Maybe the subtle flux, flex and flux of the ribcage. 
softening the interstitial muscles. Noticing the motion of the diaphragm in the belly. Allowing your abdomen to be soft. Inviting the deeper internal viscera to relax as well. Relaxing the muscles around the bones and the spine. Letting your body be rooted. Held by the chair or cushion. Held by the boundless strength of the earth. Inviting the hips and buttocks to relax. The thighs to soften. Inviting the shins, calves to soften. And any excess contraction or tension to drain out through the ankles and the feet. As they soften and ground. You're noticing the whole body present simply here. Perhaps noticing details of distant or near sound. Sensations or temperature of air on skin. Cloth on skin. Settling. And inviting now, may this heart and mind relax.
Noticing any mood, mental activity. And allowing it to be exactly as it is. Inviting a sense of kindness, clarity. As whatever is arising flows through. Acknowledging what is. With no need, no need to hang on. Or to push away. From time to time, it can be helpful to bring in just a touch of curiosity. Are you aware? What's this moment like?
from time to time, refreshing the awareness. And tapping the foot on the pedal of the bike. Or maybe pushing the swing. Noticing this moment.
And as we come to the close of this sitting, the invitation is to turn the attention to the quality of awareness, the overall mood in the heart and mind. Taking it in exactly as it is, with graciousness, kindness, if possible. Appreciating. Appreciating how things have come to be in this moment. sincerity of your practice. And as has become the custom when I teach, I invite you to take a moment and either cast your mind, well both, cast your mind towards your companions here in this Zoom room. Send them a little pulse of kindness, metta, appreciation, seen or unseen. And also knowing that you're receiving that kindness, that appreciation from everyone else in this Zoom room, fellow practitioners. And also taking a moment to send that sense of appreciation, well-wishing to other companions that you have in your life or on the path of practice, perhaps people listening later, or people you know from other gatherings. Wishing all of them well. Thank you for that. And, um, today I'm feeling a little quiet. You might be able to tell. But, um want to talk about a fundamental quality. Really fundamental quality of the path and fundamental virtue for our development. And this is part of kind of an emergent cluster of talks over the last couple of months on the paramis. 
um, the perfections, so they're called, though I don't love that word, but the um, full development of beneficial qualities that help us on the path. And the topic today is truthfulness. In Pali, that's satcha, S-A-C-C-A. And to start off, I invite you to do an internal exercise. To remember, sort of cast your gaze inwards. And remember a moment when something became really clear, a truth about your own experience. You don't have to even remember what it is, but that it's not necessarily a truth about the world, propositional truth, but something that was true for you in the moment. You might remember where you were, how it felt in your body, maybe how it felt in your heart or your mind. Just sense into that. When I was contemplating this for myself, some of my earliest memories were of a sense of things feeling or seeming sharper visually, or sometimes almost like a bolt of energy in the body, or a gentle landing, rightness in the moment. Could feel different all kinds of ways for different people, but just Recognizing whatever that is for you. So as an overview, I'll just say that it seems like there's different levels or, or forms of truthfulness, satya, which is also translated as real. Gives you kind of a sense of, of the word. And um, I'm going to talk about three levels today. They're kind of interlinked in my mind. And they are interpersonal honesty, ethical integrity in speech. And this is the one that's talked about, I think, the most in terms of the parami of truthfulness. And the second is kind of that internal clarity that we were just exploring internal honesty, knowing things as they are, as they've come to be. And then the third level is dharmic truth or dharmic truths. And here, perhaps the easiest to mention is the four noble truths or four ennobling truths, the Arya Satchani, they're called. Satchani being plural for Satcha. So that's the territory we're going to cover in the next 20 minutes, half hour, something like that. So level one, very fundamental and important, is that interpersonal honesty. One um, famous ancient teacher, Acharya Dhammapala, calls it the foundation of all other virtues. And the Buddha I didn't take time to pull the quote out of the middle-length discourses, but 
in one conversation with his young son, Rahula, says to him, basically that to tell a deliberate lie is to pour out as if you're turning over a cup of water and pouring it out the virtues developed through the meditative path, through what he called the holy life. So the Buddha considered it that important, to be honest. And it's really poignant to me to kind of hear that in this age where there's so much emphasis in many of our cultures on misinformation, alternative facts, sort of a breakdown of what people agree on as true or even real. It can take tremendous integrity to show up with honesty right now in a culture that seems to be kind of mushing truth about. And it can build trust. I remember many years before I came to practice, I was a designer and was working kind of, I was on loan to this department within my company. There were people there I'd never met before. And there's this guy there. And I don't think I'd ever met anyone that honest before. He actually wasn't that nice of a person. But wow, you knew if it came out of his mouth, it was real. And there was just something deeply trustable about that, that made him kind of nice to be around because it was like, I didn't have to worry about him blowing smoke. You know, (laughs) he said it like he felt it. Um, But that also points to something that the Buddha makes a distinction about, which is um, it can build trust. We relax around people who tell the truth and much of what passes for truth is unvarnished bias or judgment or emotion, distorted opinion, right? So there's there's honesty and then there's truth. And truth is a little trickier to get to and involves more of an internal process and a relational process. So in terms of relationship, the Buddha offers teachings, many of you have heard these many times, in terms of um, wise speech that I feel like really kind of give the bar for when it's helpful versus not helpful to share truthfully. And it's kind of a test. Is it truthful? Is it useful? Is it kind? And is it timely? Truthful, useful, kind, and timely. And all of those to add up together to, is it wise? In contemplating those for myself, particularly in my role as a hospital chaplain and also as a friend, as a family member, as a partner, whatever, I've learned the value in silence and restraint. And the value in naming the particularities of what are, what is there. Because If what's going to come out of my mouth is unvarnished opinion or bias, it might not be so helpful and it might not even be real. It might be feel true in the moment, but maybe not so helpful. So the value in restraint and in taking a second look, the etymology of the word respect, respect, to look again, to respect that process. 
of truth understanding and truth telling. And there's a simplicity to this. This starts to shade into the next level of truth, the internal level. I didn't look up the study, but brain science um, has shown that when people lie, different parts of the brain light up and it's a more complex matrix that lights up. And this is fascinating, right? It mirrors the Buddha's teaching on proliferating thought, apancha, in that when there's a lie that's happening, there are other levels of cognition that are having to be engaged. There are other levels of story-making and justification and projection or whatnot, all of which is kind of um, a mishigash of the mind, mishigash of the mind, like clutter, extra, confusion. It takes valuable resources and it blocks satcha, truth, it blocks mindfulness and awareness from really taking hold. Though, of course, the second level, this internal clarity, internal honesty, clear seeing, so often, especially in more complicated situations, if we're triggered and riled up or whatnot, that internal seeing can be a bunch of activity, justification, anger, you know, maybe having gotten it a little off. Um, I know early in my practice, especially on retreat, like everything, it felt like everything, maybe it wasn't everything, everything I'd ever said or done that was a little bit off just came back for a second look or a third look or a 10th look or a 50th look. And that too, that's not an accident. It's a process of purifying the mind and the heart. And we all go through it, all of us. Um, If we stick with the practice long enough to see these things, right? So it's just human. But even if there's a lot of complexity in this process, there's still a simplicity and an honesty to the internal gaze, that internal awareness. That mindfulness. And that has really become for me a barometer, almost like um, what do they call those things? Like a like a metal detector or a wand that detects water under the earth. Like when that simplicity happens, it's like bing, there you are, on the right track, warmer, it's closer. So in this sense, awareness, reflexive awareness or awareness of awareness, I'm using those terms synonymously, it's basically a cognate of a form of truthfulness, a very deep form of it. And chitta nupasana, contemplation of our hearts, our minds, the third foundation, it's kind of a truthfulness cultivation process. It's truing things more and more and more as time goes on. So this internal clarity, we take a lot of different levels. Like some weeks ago when I was here, we discussed the six senses and Vedana, feeling tone. And that kind of granularity in seeing what is 
arising and experience is a really good way of starting to connect with this inner clarity, inner truth. Seeing, hearing, tasting, sensing, quality of the mind, quality of the heart. Those are alternatives to my own internal story about something, my own internal projection onto something. This is especially true often and most accessible with Vedana, this feeling to unpleasant, unpleasant, and the vast range of neither pleasant nor unpleasant. I might, I mean, I remember on one retreat, I was taking a shower and um, I get aches and pains. I think a lot of us do, right? And showers often relieve that. So I'm just something that's generally favorable impression of that kind of process. It's like pleasant. And the mindfulness was so strong. The awareness was so strong that all of the little flits of unpleasant were there too. And all the flits of just sort of boring, neither were there. It helped the mind to see, oh, do this with everything. There's this wash over everything that renders it an overall, oh, that was a lovely dinner with my friends or a beautiful walk or a really unpleasant wait at the doctor's office or whatever it was. Whereas in reality, it's this constant play of pleasant, unpleasant, and neither. There's a little more honesty in dropping to that. And in the moment, it allows for a different experience. In one of my early sort of daily life retreats with Andrea Fella, one of the big, or I guess suppose it was a little aha, but it had big implications, was that tuning into the felt sensations of washing dishes actually made it really pleasant. As long as I wasn't like grumpy about what I wasn't doing instead, it was actually a perfectly fine experience. So I'm sure that each of you has experiences in your lives like this, right? It allows for what psychologists can call a reframe or simply just more nuance, more enjoyment, more clarity about what's real in that moment. So that overall tint or wash or mood, instead of becoming or masquerading as truth, can start to also be seen as the attitude of mind, relationship to reality. So this is another level of the internal truthfulness, right? I can see love and appreciation for my friend as what they are, rather than just the general wash of, oh, that was a really lovely conversation, right? Or aversion for what it is. And that can release it a little bit. Awareness can have this magical quality of helping our hearts and minds to savor the good stuff and kind of let the bad stuff wash through a little bit more, especially if there's discernment. And all of this, excuse me, all of this is Chichanupasana, contemplating mind as mind. 
the quality of the heart and mind is quality. It also points to very important pointing that the Buddha talks about in this foundation, which is seeing greed, aversion, and delusion, and seeing their absence, generosity or contentment, care, love, kindness, compassion, clarity, wisdom, awareness. And that is powerful. That's powerful in part because Nibbana, awakening, is the permanent absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. That's one of the definitions for it in the Buddha's ancient teachings. So it's really helpful to see them when they pop up and to appreciate when they're not there. Appreciating the absence helps the wholesome qualities grow. can also be a shortcut to seeing our own self-preoccupations. So this is the beginning of what in psychology is calling called being decentered, which does not mean being not centered as in not um, present, but rather means not being self-centered, not having the entire experience of life completely organized around my wishes, my agenda, my assumptions. It's to see the world and situations without I, me, and mine being at the center of it all or projected and imputed into every tiny little thing. And this, this is a very powerful insight, growth trajectory, can happen in little ways and big ways, right? I still remember the first time I caught a glimpse of the world without me in it. It totally rocked my world for years, right? And um, little glimpses of that too add up, just like drops of water can fill a bucket. So what's the alternative? Many of you already know this, but the Buddha talks about in many places seeing reality in terms of conditionality, karma, action, and result as clusters of these conditions and consequences. I'm flipping to a word document right now because the quote is easier to find there. This comes from the middle length discourses. Majjhima Nikaya 98, for those of you who track these things. And it's the closing of a discourse the Buddha is giving, a teaching he's given, giving to two boys. He concludes by saying, so that is how the truly wise see action as it really is, as interdependent conditions. The wise are skilled in actions and results. He goes on to say, living beings are bound by action, like the chariot wheel to the linchpin. So these seeing in terms of action and response, action and result. And by action here, 
It's not just physical actions or actions of speech. Actions of mind. Am I clinging on to that old bit of resentment or wounding or grump? Or have I let it go? Do I not take it so seriously? So this process of truth cultivation also means beginning to see our own blind spots. That's just by definition hard to do. Other people are huge allies in this process, not always pleasant, but huge allies in the process. One spiritual teacher talks about our companions or the role of a teacher, spiritual friend, is to hold a mirror up to the back of your head. Right? How else are you going to see this stuff? How else am I going to see this stuff? So it takes an art to take this kind of process in wisely because other people too all of us have our projections our imputations our biases our confusions our agenda but i find it helpful rather than getting into stories necessarily all those can can be very valuable and we can have really skillful conversations around stories rather getting really curious about the truth of my impact on other people. Because no matter what their story is or my story is, the fact of the impact on them for good or for ill, that's true. That impact is true. We can work from there, right? The acknowledgement of that or celebration of it, if it's a good impact. That kind of curiosity is a really caring act. It's a process of decentering in itself. And it also points to how what we lead with, what we put out, really influences it, sometimes defines what we receive and experience. This too is conditionality and karma. Famous anecdote of a gatekeeper in ancient India, right? These were really city-states at this point. And the gatekeepers had all kinds of functions. One of them was to um, orient newcomers to where they were coming. And in this particular story, the gatekeeper was a friendly person. And groups of people would come through. And one of the most common questions they would get is, what are the people like here? What's the culture? What are the people like? And this person was a wise person. And they would ask, asking one particular group, well, what were they like where you came from? And one person would say, oh, they were awful, like rude, conniving, mean, cheating. Just you couldn't trust them as far as you could look at them. And the gatekeeper would nod and sagely say, I think you'll find people a lot like that here. Right? Several groups later, someone asked the same question. What are the people like here? And the gatekeeper nods, 
they're hip to this. And well, what were they like where you came from? Oh, kind, warm, responsive, collaborative, wonderful neighbors. I you know, got this new job. I had to come here. I didn't want to leave them. Gatekeeper nods. I think you'll find people a lot like that. Right? And of course, that's not always true in every case. And it is absolutely amazing that even some of the most so-called difficult personalities I've met in my life, how it transforms the way we relate if I lead with kindness and curiosity. Brings out the best in each of us, right? So this too is conditionality. This too is a form of truth. How we show up evokes what we receive. And there's another, this brings me to sort of a brief mention, the the third level of truth, which is the four ennobling truths, four noble truths, Aryasachani, which is arguably the most important or at least the most practical form of conditionality the Buddha ever taught. It fits into, if this arises, that arises. If this ceases, that ceases. But it's a more particular case, right? The truth of dukkha, suffering or dis-ease, just the fact of it. Dukkha samudaya or samupada, the arising of dukkha, of suffering in the moment. Of dukkha niroda, the ceasing of dukkha in the moment. Arising, ceasing. And then, of course, Magga, the path to the ceasing, the ending of Dukkha. And these four noble truths can be kind of a diagnostic tool, right? For, um, and a medicine to come to the truth of the way things are in the moment. I remember many years ago, I was traveling and it was kind of a fraught traveling experience with a friend. We weren't getting along. It was very stressful. And she and her wisdom just looked at me and named, this is Dukkha. And it just relaxed something, right? It wasn't like me or you or your fault or my fault, or this going wrong and that. Oh, this is suffering. Okay. What is going to help release the suffering? And then we were into a different mode, different way of being. So it can cut through confusion, the tool, the diagnostic of these four noble truths. And remove any extra confusions, layers, justifications, second arrows following that first arrow of suffering. So, To recap, the power, the practice of truth, internally and externally, it's nourished by and it nourishes the simplicity of awareness itself. It's nourished by and nourishes wisdom itself. 
and it's a foundational virtue and powerful ally on the path. So thank you for your kind attention. Wish you many truthful moments in undertaking this path wisely. So friends, I'm going to pause the recording and we'll unpause it again at the very end so we can speak freely with question and answer for a little while. May the practice that we have done here together be cause and condition for greater truthfulness, awareness, kindness, and awakening in ourselves and in all of the lives we touch, all of the lives they touch, and so on, rippling out, outwards and outwards. May all beings be safe. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healing and as healthy as possible. And may all beings everywhere be free. Thank you, friends, for your practice. And I'll see some of you in two weeks. Take good care and feel free to unmute yourselves to say goodbye. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Don. Thanks, Don. Thank you so much, Don. Bye. Bye. Bye.